This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Fourth grade teacher Kathy Rio walked into the state capitol Thursday to deliver a stack of handwritten letters to the governor. Rio teaches in Douglas County, and her students had written in pencil on notebook paper why they think schools deserve more money. She read a few highlights for us. So it would be great if you could maybe pay teachers more. You probably got this job because you got a great education. No education means I can't become governor. Okay, oh, here's my thing. Do you really want to let kids that can change the future not get that chance because you didn't let them get the education they need? Rio was one of hundreds of educators this week demanding the state close a massive hole in K-12 spending, billions of dollars since the recession. We met her just before CPR's regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. From the Capitol, here's Ryan Warner. Governor, thank you for being with us again. My pleasure, as always. Do you support these walkouts? Well, I hate to see kids missing a day of school. And you see the challenges that education faces at every line. It's concerning. That being said, teachers in Colorado are not paid sufficiently for the job that they're doing. Uh, We're one of the most, right now, the strongest economy in America, one of the most affluent states. And we should be able to pay teachers enough to live on and enough to be able to find housing. When teachers come through the Capitol, or or protesters, I guess, in general, uh, how often do you go out and meet with them? Is there time in your schedule made for that? Uh, Generally not. I think this is a large enough protest. We're trying to find out how do we get some time to meet with them. We've worked as hard as we can to get more money into education, right? The last two years, we've added almost 5% a year for the last couple of years, which again, in the tight fiscal times is always difficult when there's so many competing needs. Uh, and since I got here in uh, 2010-11, we've added 26%. So it's not like we're not trying. This year, lawmakers have agreed to about a $150 million paydown of a, an IOU, essentially, in terms of education funding from the state to schools. There's a shortfall of about $672 million a year, and educators want that IOU from the state eliminated by 2022. Can that happen? Well, the trick, obviously, is Tabor, and it's easy for us to sit around and say, well, teachers should be paid more, but even if our economy continues to grow, and I think it will, uh, and we get sufficient revenues that we can afford to pay teachers more and put more money into education, Uh, We're going to bump up against the Tabor cap. So we'll have to go to the voters and ask their permission to de-Taborize the restriction on that ceiling and and those payments. You're hearing that from some of the Democratic candidates for governor right now. Is it time for Tabor reform, in your opinion? Tabor the Taxpayer Bill of Rights? Well, Tabor's, you know, in in many parts of Colorado, still very popular. Uh, It's always been a battle cry from conservatives everywhere. When it first passed, what, more than 25 years ago, it was the model that every state should adopt. I think it is interesting to look 25 years later, and not one other state has adopted Tabor. In other words, it does not give you the flexibility to adjust to things like teacher compensation. So at some point, I think it's going to have to be modified to compete. At a certain point, we're going to have a hard time getting quality teachers to come here. And if that continues, then we're going to have a hard time getting businesses to stay here. How soon do you think that should happen? There's the potential, I'll say, for an education-specific tax measure on the ballot this year. Yes, I think there are a number of potential measures that people are looking at. And 
the ideal would be to get a referred measure, obviously. That's not going to happen this year. That is from the legislature. That won't happen. But they can still go out and, and gather petitions and, and put something on. Would, would they have your support if they did that? Well, it's, it depends on exactly what, what it says. Again, I'm a believer that we have to pay more to teachers. You know, ultimately, our kids are going to be the future of our economy. So we're fools or you know, just blind if we don't recognize that and begin finding ways we can increase that compensation. And if that means we've got to, you know, uh, modify the ceiling on Tabor, then we probably need to do that. Chris, there are some who will say that money in the hands of taxpayers is better than in the hands of government. Well, but then the question is, is it better in the hands of teachers or better in the hands of taxpayers? And if your teachers are so far underpaid that you're losing out in the competition to attract new teachers, then long-term there'll be less money in the taxpayers' hands, right? If our economy begins to be dragged down because we don't have a decent education system, which ultimately would happen, I think that is a stronger argument that there'll be even less money for taxpayers. Isn't Colorado recent history littered with the remains of statewide tax increases that they tried to pass on the ballot and failed to do? Well, I think what they're talking about in this case, and there are a lot of different voices, is just removing part of that taper cap to allow education to get more money. So that's not necessarily trying to raise taxes. Now, I realize there are different people having different proposals, but one that I've seen I think has more support is just saying, all right, let's get rid of the taper cap uh, until we've eliminated the entire negative factor, that what you call the, the loan from the state. Yeah, this IOU. Once that's paid down to zero, then the, the Tabor cap can be there. But I mean, it's in our Constitution, right? Amendment 23 says we're supposed to be putting this much money into education. And we are still almost $700 million uh, in the red. I want to know that this is a walkout and not a strike. Teachers are taking personal leave to participate. Uh, that said, a bill introduced in the legislature the other day would ban strikes and fine teachers, possibly even more severe penalties for those who participate. The bill was introduced by Republicans in the state Senate, unlikely to survive in the Democratic-controlled House. But that said, if such a bill were to pass, would you sign it? Well, I avoid hypotheticals, as you well know, Ryan. Yeah, uh, but the, the fundamental question but being... The, but, the, but the bottom line is... If we're doing this properly, we shouldn't get to the point where there's a strike. Our kids... That's an artful answer to the question of whether teachers should be allowed to strike. Well, I mean, we have a whole set of rules and regulations and laws that govern when you can strike and when you can't. And, you know, when teachers try to strike, there are a lot of things that get snapped into action. Indeed. So any new law that adds more... Uh, restrictions on that, I think will be, uh, I'd be surprised if it got through the, the General Assembly. What should educators be willing to sacrifice? I mean, given that the state has competing needs, transportation chief among them, and not endless cash, a lot of the thrust of the conversation right now is what should educators get? Are there things they should sacrifice? I mean, I don't think they should have to sacrifice making a decent living. I don't think Schools should have to sacrifice having, you know, the basic tools of teaching. Might the sacrifices come in another debate happening here at the Capitol over PARA, the state pension fund of which many teachers are members? Well, there's a challenge there that if you're trying to bring PARA back up into compliance, conformance. It has $32 billion in unfunded liabilities. Right. So there's several different levers there. We can put more state money in. Now, that's money that 
in this case, probably would, would go back to teachers or education right now. I think there's a strong sensibility on the second floor that if we were able to strike the right bargain, some of that money that's going to para should go to education. So there's a difficult balance between teachers that are retired versus teachers that are active uh, or teachers that are active but about to retire. So do you suspend your cost of living adjustments for several years? Do you lower that cost of living adjustment? That's a a burden that's paid only by people that have already retired uh, and allows you to put more money into teachers that are teaching. But that's a difficult choice for teachers to make, right? There's a, a certain level of solidarity. So here at the Capitol, you've got lawmakers working on shoring up para. You've got them debating on how to clear up a $9 billion backlog in transportation projects. You've got teachers demanding more money. Two weeks left in session. (laughs) Sounds like the plot for a great mystery. Who knows what will happen in these next couple of weeks? If the legislature can't solve all of these in the next couple of weeks, is there one that is most important to you? Well, they're so interconnected. And it's hard to imagine solving one without addressing the others. So I don't prioritize one over another. I, I really have great optimism and hope that we'll get maybe not para perfectly fixed, but make real improvements in the same way with education. We're not going to get them back to where they need to be this year. But by balancing those needs and transportation as well, we can make a credible effort. Would you call lawmakers back for a special session to address any of these? I don't see anything right now that's on at, at that level. I mean, I never say never, but you know, when we were kids, my mother, you know, my mother raised four kids by herself. She would pretend to be cranky when she really wasn't, and we complain about what was on di- our plate because maybe it was cream beef again, or ha- I mean, she had a million ways of cooking things that didn't cost very much money, and we'd complain, and she would say, "It ain't what you want; it's what you're going to get." And she'd kind of, you know, shake her fist at us. I mean, my mom was five foot, so her fist was quite small. But I think that's the essence of compromise, right? I don't think of you as a fist shaker, <laughs> you know, as, as someone who sort of uses the bully pulpit with the legislature. Am I hearing that that might be the case this session? <laughs> no, that was not the way that... That's not how I should intended. interpret that. Okay, all right. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper. I want to talk about marijuana now. An interview you did with Rolling Stone this month got a lot of attention on pot issues, and there's one aspect I want to follow up on, the black market. You commented that it all used to be black market, so even if there's still some illegal marijuana here, it's a huge improvement. Now, earlier this year, the news site Colorado Politics quoted you by saying, I think in the next two or three years, that black market might never be zero, but it will be largely gone. What makes you say that? Well, because we now have a better system of identifying where that black market is coming from. We're putting more resources. So last year was the first year. This year we're adding more money to law enforcement coming out of the marijuana tax and setting up a whole detail within the state police and providing more money to local jurisdictions that they can go after this more aggressively. We also lowered the number of plants. Remember, the plants were 99 plants where you could have a a kind of a grow for your friends and family. This is under the medical law. Right. And that was just an invitation to black markets. Uh, You put all those together, and I think we have reason to be optimistic. Perhaps I was too optimistic. It might take uh, five years. 
The problem, as we've heard from the director of public safety, is mostly with people growing marijuana here and then selling it in other states, particularly on the East Coast, for a lot more money than they'd get on the Colorado legal market. Uh, Here is public safety director Stan Hilke to us. What they have been telling us and what we've seen is that there is more and more evidence that there are more people coming into Colorado and sort of hiding in plain sight to be able to grow uh, marijuana illegally inside of homes. Now, Hilke acknowledged progress in enforcement, including the new money that you mentioned. But is it an expanding problem, as he says, or will it be gone in a number of years? Square those views for us. That's hard to predict. Law enforcement personnel generally uh, see the dire circumstances coming at them. Those of us that have you know, been in policy longer and maybe not so concerned with that narrow part of policy tend to be a little more optimistic. I, I can't Although t- I, I suppose they'd say they've got the real view of things. Right, exactly. I think they probably would, that they're the ones who are spending more time thinking about this, have greater access to the facts. They may well be right. My sense is that if we continue to see a greater problem, we will put more money into having greater and greater law enforcement until that point where we knock it down. Isn't the rub here, though, that it, it's hard to have a real grasp on the numbers? I mean, the state doesn't seem to keep comprehensive statistics about black market seizures or marijuana-related crime, for example. I want to play for you local Drug Enforcement Administration spokesman Randy Ladd, who talked with my colleague about this. My partners in law enforcement are telling me that, no, they're not required to keep a statistic, you know, for example, if someone is murdered in a parking lot because there was a marijuana deal going on, it's just a homicide. It's not a marijuana-related homicide. Statistics are kept for domestic violence and hate crime and other categories of crime, but the marijuana crime statistics are not being kept. His point is basically the public should know what's being done, just like they're able to know the positives around pot in terms of tax revenues coming in from legalization, for instance. Well, why is no one looking at the other side of the spreadsheet? What is being spent on that? All of the law enforcement resources, the hundreds and hundreds of search warrants that are executed across Colorado every year that are related to marijuana and all the time and resources. What do you think about this idea of better tracking those aspects of legalization? Well, and it's not even legalization. I mean, that's, that's an issue. The connection of drugs to crime or, or just the possession of marijuana. Someone gets shot in a parking lot and there's marijuana on the scene. Was the marijuana part of that killing or not? I think that's what people may be craving to know or to have better tracking. No, of. I think that's true. And, and we, you know, Colorado is a, a local control state. So it's, I mean, most of our police work is done by municipalities. They don't like having the state come and say, all right, now you're going to have to keep this data. You'll end up with 25 pages of rules and regulations of those specific situations when they're going to suddenly now have to call this a drug-related crime. They've already got tons of those rules and regulations already. I'm a believer in data. So if there's a way to do it efficiently, uh, I would support that kind of a proposal. What data are you hungry for around marijuana? What answers do you not have, particularly around the black market, that you'd like? Well, I'd love to see exactly where the people are getting arrested in other states, and we actually have definitive proof that it came from Colorado, and place and time and see that on a map. I think that can be meaningful in terms of getting out ahead of it. There's been discussions about whether people's electric bills 
should be accessible by law enforcement, right? In other words, if you look at black market marijuana, I guarantee you they're not doing it out in the sunlight. They're, they're doing it under grow lights, and you're going to see a spike in electrical consumption. But there's a lot of First Amendment privacy rights when you start talking about that kind of stuff. I guess without a lot of the data you're talking about, we've been talking about around the black market especially, it makes me wonder how you can say confidently it's disappearing. Well, certainly when I said that, and that was some time ago, we did not have as many, or at least I was unaware of as many uh, issues with the interdiction of marijuana as it was leaving the state. And we've had several large busts on that basis. It might well be that, that given the information I had, that's made sense to say then, and we see more information like that, we might have a steeper hill to climb, might be a longer effort. We have the resources now, right? We have tax revenue from marijuana that should be used for marijuana-caused unintended consequences. Governor, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper is Colorado's governor. He speaks regularly with my colleague Ryan Warner. The drought in Colorado and around the Southwest makes this next story particularly important. In anticipation of future droughts, states along the Colorado River have come together in recent years to agree to unprecedented water conservation experiments. But there are cracks in that cooperation, signs that years of work could be at risk. Here to help explain why is John Fleck, director of the University of New Mexico Water Resources Program. John, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to talk to my friends in Colorado in their radios. Yeah. You're a former longtime Albuquerque Journal reporter, uh, and you noticed something at Arizona's largest water provider and wondered aloud on your blog if it was, quote, gaming the system. What are they doing that makes you wonder that? So it's important to lay the foundation here to step back in a moment. We have a problem in the Colorado River Basin, seven states in the United States and two in uh, Mexico that share this big river. Um, when we carved up the river on paper 100 years ago, we allocated more water than the river has, and that's finally coming back to haunt us a century later, and the reservoirs are really dropping. So what's been happening over the last decade or more is an effort to try to figure out ways for everyone to use less water. And there was a broad collaborative effort underway on the part of the seven states. And I think there still is a broad collaborative effort. But in recent years, and especially in recent months, um, one of the biggest water users on the system, the Central Arizona Project, which brings water to Phoenix and Tucson and a bunch of farms in those areas, um, made public the fact that it was trying not to conserve too much water to exploit a quirk in the rules that essentially allowed it to get more water um, off of the system if they didn't conserve too much. And the, the rules are weird and they're super arcane, but the bottom line is everybody else said, wait, what? You, you shouldn't do that. So let, let me get this straight here. Arizona's largest water provider, the Central Arizona Project, admitted to not saving as much water as they could, thus looking out for themselves, it seems, instead of the interests of everyone on the river. And that set off other cities and states in protests, including Denver and Pueblo here in Colorado. How did they react? Well, they reacted in an interesting way because what Arizona is doing is, in fact, within the rules. And some of us have used words like manipulation and gaming the system, but maybe they're just optimizing the way the rules are set up to maximize the water available to them. 
The problem is that everybody else said, well, we've really been working hard to come up with new, better rules that would allow all of us to conserve water and save Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the two big reservoirs on the system. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, the states of the Upper Colorado River Basin, which is you folks there in Colorado and Wyoming and Utah and New Mexico, sent a strongly worded letter to Arizona saying, this is not the way we do things in the Colorado River Basin. And then in the following days, Denver Water, led by Jim Lockhead, who's been one of the leaders, he's the general manager of Denver Water, one of the leaders in this attempt to find collaborative, cooperative solutions, fired off his own letter, Pueblo joined them, and really trying to send the message that what you're doing may be within the rules, but it isn't within the norms, these sort of unwritten but really important collaborative norms that we're going to have to be able to use in order to figure out how to get by with less water than we thought the Colorado River could provide to all of us. And in that letter that was sent by Denver Water's CEO, he says Denver Water have spent millions of dollars conserving water upstream, and that's at stake with this kind of move. How, how can that be? The, the more water we conserve seems to be better, right? Well, the problem is that if we in the upper basin, and here in Albuquerque, I'm part of the upper Colorado River Basin. We uh-huh. use Colorado River water, too. Um, if we conserve water, that water ends up in Lake Powell, um, which is sort of a giant savings bank. And the way the rules are written, um, if they use more water in the lower basin, part of what happens is more water from our savings bank ends up going downstream through the Grand Canyon into their savings bank. So the rules were written in a way that I don't think the people who wrote them expected. Um, They didn't expect it to turn out this way. Um, But it created this weird incentive for Arizona to use um, a little bit more water and then get a lot more water out of our savings bank. And so there's a lot of people in the upper basin who say, well, wait, we're trying to do these voluntary measures to conserve water, figure out how to put more water in Lake Powell to try to save the system. And then you all down in Arizona, the Central Arizona Project, are just kind of taking that water away from us. And it makes collaborative problem solving much more difficult. You wrote a book that we interviewed you about not too long ago that argued that Colorado River Basin states were cooperating in a really encouraging way. And you're far from the only one to say that. Water managers from Colorado to California are saying the same sorts of things. But this dispute seems different and seems like a really big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal, but in an interesting way. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I believe, and I think a lot of people on the river believe, is that if... Arizona, the Central Arizona Project, had behaved this way 20 or 30 years ago, nobody would have batted an eye. Everybody would have expected selfish behavior by individual actors on the river. And what has changed, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, you know, and and Denver Waters' Jim Lockhead was a big part of this, is this evolving norm of collaboration and cooperation instead of conflict. You know, that was one of the big points of my book, was to try to document that evolution of the process. And so I think one of the reasons that what happened Um, in the letters from the Upper Basin and then from Denver Water is so important is because it was folks in the basin saying, no, this is no longer okay to behave this way. We have a new way of trying to solve problems on the Colorado River, and you, the Central Arizona Project, are violating those norms. And, you know, one of the things that happens in this sort of informal institutional network that runs the Colorado River is that shaming and pointing to and enforcing these informal norms is a really important part of how we get this stuff done now. It's really hard to write rules that work well enough to solve these problems because the system is so complicated. Well, you so essentially you say, dep- well, I'm sorry, well, you essentially say the whole future of southwestern states that get their water from the Colorado River depends on collaboration just like this, right? 
Exactly, exactly. And the the sad part of all this is that Arizona has the most to lose by a lack of collaboration. They have the greatest risk to their water supply. So they really, I think, have a strong incentive to kind of get on board with this and, and stop behaving the way they are. So Pueblo says it may withdraw from the conservation program. Denver Water says it's considering withdrawing at the end of the year. How significant are these moves from Pueblo and Denver to the entire collaboration? They're important symbolically. The amount of water involved was relatively small. The symbolism of this program was really important, and the program was really important in the process of learning how to do these conservation measures, which are very difficult and complicated in the upper basin. you got to figure out how to conserve water and get it all the way down to Lake Powell, very difficult set of problems. Um, To have them pull out signals that one of the most promising, small but promising efforts underway um, has might be failing not because the program itself doesn't work, but because the necessary collaborative infrastructure that we need around it in the rest of the Colorado River Basin is breaking down. Is this brinkmanship, do you think? Um, yeah, there's some of that going on. Um, hmm. You know, part of what's going on here is some brinkmanship within Arizona. There's a bunch of fighting within Arizona that's super complicated and um, I try to understand it, but Arizona's water politics are strange. Water in strange. general is complicated in the West. <laughs> yeah, and then Arizona times 10. Yeah. Um, but but um, I don't think there's brinksmanship. I think um, what there was is an effort by the folks in the upper basin to try to pull us back from the brink, to say, mm. don't do brinksmanship. Um, um, let's get this back on the collaborative path. And um, Arizona says it's just it's good bad. water management. Arizona is like this is a thing that's good. We're trying to be managing this water in, in a proper way. Yeah, Arizona is certainly right to argue that within the rules they're doing they're making a smart choice in terms of optimizing their water supply. It's good water management in that way. It's bad water management if you look at the broader picture of the Colorado River Basin where Arizona, by doing good water management and solving their own problem, puts everybody else at risk. And ultimately, that will turn out to be bad water management for Arizona. So what happens next? Um, There's a meeting scheduled Monday with folks from the Bureau of Reclamation and the Upper Basin States and the folks from Arizona in Salt Lake City. Um, There's another meeting scheduled May 2nd in Las Vegas with representatives of the Lower Basin States, Nevada, and California and Arizona, and folks from Arizona. I mean, everybody else is mad at the Central Arizona Project about this. So there's a series of meetings that are an attempt to get the diplomacy process, the kind of collaboration that I talk about and advocate for, um, back on track. So we'll see. This could either jump the rails completely in these meetings or we could get back on track. And I'm optimistic at the way these meetings are being set up and framed. It's a good chance to, um, uh, you know, put this uh, toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. And and finally, I mean, this hasn't been a good year for snowfall in Colorado. Some places in the state are experiencing an exceptional drought, and and about a third of the continental U.S. is in drought right now, almost all of it in the southwest. How much of the building tension do you attribute to water managers just being nervous right now about what they're seeing on the ground? I think a lot of it. um, You know, Jim Lockhead has said that the problems we have this year— are bad. If we have a second year in a row, we could really see a difficult time on the Colorado River. So I think there's a lot of pressure on the part of everyone to try to get um, the Colorado, the negotiated collaborative Colorado River management process back on track because there's some big decisions we need to make about how to go about using less water in the long run in the Colorado River Basin. 
so many complicated things by turning on your faucet for a glass of water. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. John Fleck leads the University of New Mexico's Water Resources Program. He wrote, Water is for fighting over and other myths about water in the West. We have a link to his blog at CPR.org. He writes about the dispute going on between a large Arizona water provider and states like Colorado over water in the Colorado River. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When she was a student at the University of Denver, Jess Davidson was sexually assaulted by another student. That was in 2015. It took her over a year to report it to the school. Davidson thinks Colorado's colleges and universities need to be more clear about their rules, and she's backing a bill in the state legislature that she hopes will help future victims. Davidson's now with the group End Rape on Campus, which is based in Washington, D.C. Jess, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So first, can you tell us your story? What happened? I can. So I was a junior in college in January of 2015, and I had heard a lot about sexual assault on campus. Um, I knew that my peers had been sexually assaulted. I knew that the university had resources, but I really didn't know exactly what those resources looked like. And then I was raped at an off-campus party by an acquaintance who was in my dorm my freshman year. I'd partied with them a couple of times, but I certainly didn't expect to be sexually assaulted by them when they walked me home after I'd had a decent amount to drink that night. The last thing that I thought about doing right away was reporting. Um, I was really scared. I didn't. So you were scared. You know, yeah, I was very scared. I just didn't know if the university would do the right thing, if they would believe me. DU had been under investigation for a Title IX violation by the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education, and I didn't really know what it would look like to report. So I waited a year, but after a year of living and learning in the same environment as my rapist, I couldn't handle it anymore. I was trying to finish up my senior year finals, and I kept running into my assailant in the library. And when I did that, I would have to leave the library to vomit because I was so physically overcome with fear and with anxiety. And it was too much for me. So I made a report to the DU Title IX office in 2016 and went through the reporting process. And I'm very grateful that they eventually did find my assailant responsible and he's no longer allowed on campus. I can be an active alumna. However, they found him responsible after graduation because it took them so long to complete their investigation And this bill that's currently in the state legislature would have changed the way that that looked for me and dramatically improved my experience. Well, well, let's get to the bill here. The bill you're advocating for got watered down significantly this week by the Senate Judiciary Committee. It added several amendments the bill's sponsors are very unhappy with. But we should point out that schools already have to follow certain requirements. You mentioned it's actually part of Title IX, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of gender for colleges and universities that receive federal money. I know people usually think of Title IX as only referring to sports, but the courts have found it's much broader than that. How How is it interpreted when it comes to sexual violence? That's a great question. So, yes, Title IX is typically thought of as a law that requires equal access to sports. But actually what the law requires is equal access to all educational opportunities for students and prevents discrimination on the basis of sex. Courts have found that a single instance of sexual violence, one rape on one campus, can create a learning environment that is so hostile 
that it can prevent all students from having equal access to education. And so that's why schools are required under Title IX to respond when they're aware of an instance of sexual violence that can create a hostile environment and to respond to it adequately, both to prevent it and to assist the person who has experienced sexual violence. That's why when a student reports sexual violence on their campus, they can report to their Title IX office. The amended bill that's currently in the state legislature is quite different from the original one. But but in general, what's the most important thing it sets out to do to make it less likely a sexual assault would happen at a school? There are a couple of key elements of the bill. The first is, um, and I'm speaking about the bill as I supported it in the House, because you're correct, it has been watered down significantly. And we don't know what the final copy will look like when it goes to the floor. My hope is that the bill will be sent will be sent back to the House. And I'm very hopeful about the draft that was submitted when I testified in Colorado in the House committee a few weeks ago. The first thing that it does is it adds the preponderance of the evidence standard as the standard for cases for Title IX hearings in Colorado. What is that? And that's very important because the preponderance of the evidence standard is a standard that means it's more likely than not that the instance has occurred. And it's the only evidentiary standard that treats both parties equally without assuming that either person has done any wrongdoing. It's been upheld in court as the appropriate standard for all administrative proceedings, which a Title IX hearing is. So it sets forth the most fair evidentiary standard. Within this realm and this idea of fairness and equity, the bill does a couple of other things to promote equity for all parties that I'm really excited about. The first is that, so, you know, in my in my Title IX case, my uh, investigation went significantly over. And that was one reason why my assailant was found guilty after graduation and why my case took so long. The university did not have to give me advance notice of that delay, nor did they have to communicate about the delay to both me and the person who was being investigated. This bill would change that and make it so that any delays have advanced warning and that frequent communication with both parties who are involved in the investigation takes place on a regular basis. I think that all students who are involved in a process like this deserve to have equal access to information frequently and not be left in the dark. It also would ban unfair practices like cross-examination, mediation, and the use of prior irrelevant sexual history in cases. Now, I want to go back to, we were talking about the burden of proof uh, here just a few seconds ago. The original bill would have done more to protect college students to come forward about an assault. It would have set a lower burden of proof for how colleges make decisions in sexual assault cases. You called that preponderance of evidence standard. But the amended bill raises that burden of proof. Why do you think decisions in these cases on college campuses should have a lower burden of proof than they would outside college campuses? It's a great question and one that I get a lot in this very important national conversation about due process. As somebody who wasn't given a fair process during my proceeding, I think that due process and fair process for all students is extremely important. But there's a key difference between an administrative hearing on a campus that's determining whether or not a student is a threat to the safety of that campus, an administrative proceeding, and a legal proceeding in a court of law. You actually only have due process in a court of law. The best thing that we can do for Title IX hearings is make them the most fair process possible. And for administrative hearings, that's the preponderance standard. Additionally, a lot of the students that I work with at End Rape on campus are not looking to have long-term remedies for their experience with sexual violence. What they want is to no longer have to sit in a classroom with the person who raped them. They want to no longer have to live in a dorm next to somebody who committed sexual violence against them. Those students cannot wait 
for a criminal investigation to complete before they can get those kinds of remedies that will help them complete their education. What I needed was to not see my rapist in the library so that I could finish finals. That helped me complete my education. Had I been forced to wait through a criminal proceeding for that, I don't don't know. I might not have been able to get the kinds of accommodations that I needed to ensure that I could complete my education, and that's a violation of Title IX. Students need options to go through the criminal system if they'd like or to go through the Title IX proceeding if what they're looking for is an educational remedy. There's uh, been a growing concern even by feminists about a backlash against male students on campuses that in sexual assault cases, they aren't being afforded due process and that the accusers have more power. Have you seen that happen? And, and, and do you have concerns that a kid's life could be ruined because of this? I, I mean, interpreting a sexual encounter could be complicated, especially when, when alcohol is involved, right? You know, I think that it is complicated, but also I think that's one reason why affirmative consent education is really necessary starting in high schools. Mm. That's a separate conversation of this bill, but something I'd love to see return to the legislature next session. Um, You know, I I take issue with the narrative that this is ruining somebody's life because sexual violence also ruins lots of students' lives. We need to look at this from the perspective that two students' education is on the line. And so we have a responsibility to make the process the most fair possible for both students. I've seen cases where schools have gotten it wrong and tipped the scales away um, from the favor of the assailant. But more often, I see cases where schools are afraid of a lawsuit from somebody who's been accused of sexual violence, and they violate their own policies to harm the person who's reporting sexual assault. Um, Most often when students get referred to somebody to be their advisor for a case, we see accused students leaning towards lawyers, and we see survivors getting sent to confidential survivor advocates, not even thinking about the legal ramifications. We see a lot of schools that are concerned about lawsuits coming from predominantly accused students. And the majority of the time, I see that the scales are tipped in favor of the students who are accused rather than for the survivors themselves. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And that's why this robust national conversation about fairness and due process is really important. But it's important that we're thinking about the fact that both people's education are on the line and both people or both sides of this issue have experienced unfair process again and again, survivors more often than not. You alluded to this just a bit earlier, but apart from what universities can do, what could college kids do on their own? I mean, when they have a sexual encounter, can they do a better job of making sure they're on the same page with the other person? Absolutely. I think that a lot of college students come into college maybe not having had appropriate consent education. And that's one thing that we can do to prevent sexual violence from the outset. All students should understand that you have to affirmatively ask and receive a yes at multiple stages of a sexual encounter. That consent cannot be given if it is coerced, that it cannot be given if somebody is um, under the influence, and that it cannot be given, or excuse me, that it can be given and then taken away. Consent is an ongoing, active conversation between students, and a lot of media don't portray it that way. Um, A lot of pop culture doesn't portray it that way. One of the best things that students can do is start having conversations with their peers, with their friends, and with their partners about what affirmative consent looks like in their life and how to practice it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jess Davidson is the interim director of the Washington, D.C.-based group End Rape on Campus. We've been talking about a bill now in the Colorado legislature that would require colleges and universities to be more transparent about their sexual assault policies. (music) 
thru-hiking the entire Continental Divide Trail, or CDT, between Canada and Mexico means covering 3,100 miles. It's not just the towering mountains, the dry deserts, and extreme weather that make the trail challenging. Hiker and the trail show podcaster Felicia Hermosillo of Salida says sometimes the trail just disappears. I think it's um, kind of sickly humorous that on day one we were freezing cold and it was raining. And today, when we left Montana, it was freezing cold and raining, and there was no trail today, which was an added bonus. But it's done. That's a recording of Hermosillo on the CDT in 2006. She's part of a group trying to blaze or mark the entire Continental Divide Trail. Felicia, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So it takes months to through-hike the entire CDT. How often did the trail disappear, and what did you do when that happens? Uh, well, it really depends on where you are on the trail. So in some states like Montana, parts of Wyoming, and New Mexico, those were the most common places where the trail would just disappear. And that usually happened daily. And kind of what you do is you you pull out your – we pulled out our, our maps and our compass, and sometimes we had an an older model GPS. Nowadays, everybody has an app. But uh, you pull out your your tool for navigation and you look towards where you need to go. And then you just go in that direction until you hopefully stumble upon some trail again. But, but isn't having an unmarked trail just kind of the allure of this challenging trail? I mean, uh, I mean, having to use your intuition and GPS tracking to navigate the trail. For sure. I absolutely agree with that. And and hiking on trails that don't actually exist on the ground is quite thrilling, and it's a different type of adventure. And historically, the CDT has had that reputation as compared to the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. But the CDT is also a national scenic trail, and the trails that tend to be more uh, navigation-heavy are not national scenic trails. They're more routes, and it's a different type of adventure. And with the National Scenic Trail, I think it's important for us to have an actual trail set and blazed because uh, one for erosion, people, we create braided trails, and the CDT especially goes into a lot of high alpine areas that where the ecosystem is really fragile. And it's, it's really better for our environment and for the ecosystem to have marked and uh, actual trail tread on the ground so that people follow one, one specific path instead of tramping down the, the eco vegetation or the alpine vegetation that's up there. Which, of course, you said is really fragile. Yes, yeah. very fragile. You're part of the Continental Divide Trail Coalition that's trying to mark the entire trail. How are you going to do that? That's a good question. And there's there have been several pushes in the past to do things with the CDT to try to make it a little more uh, tamed or uncontrolled, not so unruly. Yeah. But what the CDTC is doing is encouraging people to visit their website, continentaldividetrail.org. And there you can see which sections of trail are available. And then people can take an online or in-person training depending on where they live and what's available. And those trainings center around where do I place markers? How far apart? And how does how do I place it on the tree so that you can see it from the north side and then one on the other side so you can you know, so if you're going different directions on the trail. And um, and then also, they once you've completed that training, they actually send you the materials, the, the markers and posts if your section has, happens to be above tree line, which I actually maintain a section that's above tree line uh-huh. uh, down near Salida. So in those cases, you actually have to put in wooden posts because there's nothing to put the trail marker no on. No trees up above exactly. tree line. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You mentioned using uh, straight GPS coordinates before the trail if the trail was lost. 
and that's typically just one path that someone took at one time. That's correct. How do you know exactly where the actual trail is? Well, if the trail doesn't exist, then you can follow. And, and I believe the CDTC actually has those GPS coordinates. So they have an actual marked tra- uh, path that they would like people to, you know, this is the official trail. But when the trail doesn't exist as a hiker, you just kind of, you know, I need to head to that valley or that pass or over there. And so you just go that direction. So the CDT coalition says, OK, this is the official right. path. We're going to send right. you things. Um, and, and I've, I've been told that it's Montana and, uh, New Mexico that really need the blazing yeah, work. They, they do because, uh, Colorado has such a strong outdoor recreation community and infrastructure that m- most of the trail in Colorado is, is marked and, and maintained. Um, and I will say that for people who are listening are like, oh, well, I live in Colorado, so they don't need any help. But, there are some places in Montana that are super remote and in New Mexico that are remote and so beautiful. And this is an opportunity to take a different type of hiking vacation. Uh, you can go to a section and uh, you can spend your week uh, blazing, you know, this few day section of, of uh, wilderness area. And, and it gives you an, an excuse to go to a place that maybe you wouldn't have gone. And then you're also helping, uh, you're helping outdoor recreation. You're helping the CDTC. You're actually helping the the ecosystem up there by directing people to a certain path. Um, and and it gives you, as as someone who's done a lot of trail maintenance, it gives you a more intimate relationship with that specific section of trail, which is really a unique experience. Do you have to be a, a hardcore backpacker to do something like this? I mean, not just hike the CDT, but actually help in blazing sections that need it. No, I would say actually it requires uh, a little less uh, know-how and time. To, doing the to, sections, yeah, doing the sections. Yeah. Then, then uh, you know, if you're doing a through hike, it's it's pretty impossible actually to be like, oh, I'm going to stop every, <laughs> you know, half mile and put in a marker on a tree. I, I've heard that through hikers have special trail names, and I find that really interesting. Can you tell me what yours is? Mine is the Princess of Darkness, a- and why is that? Um, the short version of that story is that I'm kind of evil. I like to mess with people. <laughs> I like to harass people and generally people I like. I don't usually poke at people I don't like, but yeah. yeah. And, and why don't people use their names on these long hikes? I know the Appalachian Trail, you, you do that too. You get a different yeah. name. Yeah. And most people carry their name from one trail to the to the other. You keep oh, the see. same name. Um, the reason is because the trail is a great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or a pauper, everybody, at the end of the day, everybody's got to hike the same number of miles to get from Mexico to Canada or Canada to Mexico. And your gear can be totally, you know, used and torn up and you can have the newest gear, the other person. But the reality is that hiking a long trail takes so much mental willpower that it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are. It's an equalizer. And so this trail name, I think, is, is, a, is a way for you to assume um, either a portion of yourself that you really like or a different identity. Um, it, it makes everybody equal. I don't know. It's just like a, it's like a tight-knit community. And finally, you know, as more and more wilderness areas like the CDT Trail become more accessible, are, are you concerned about protecting it and, and, and keeping it, you know, wilderness? Uh, for sure. Uh, and I think that actually building and maintaining trail is the best way to protect wilderness because it opens access to lots of different people. And the more people you have enjoying the outdoors, the more people you have that care about our public lands and our public spaces. And so 
I think that by blazing the CDT and making it feel like it's more accessible to just your average through uh, day hiker, then those people are going to say, hey, that's my land. I've been there. I want to protect this space. So so in the end, blazing the, the CDT and and opening up trails and, and um, just makes it more accessible to more people, which just helps more people protect it. And, and really briefly, how long will this take? Years? Months? Uh, to blaze the CDT? The entire thing, yeah. Well, they're hoping to actually complete the project this summer. Oh, okay. Uh, so hopefully just this summer. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Long-distance hiker Felisa Hermosillo of Salida is part of the Continental Divide Trail Coalition, which is working to blaze the entire Continental Divide Trail. And that's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Nathan Heffel. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. And our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Be sure to listen to us this weekend. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.